In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you to the servants who get me the chair and the table. It's nice. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> God willing, today we're going to start a new series uh, about the Holy Scriptures. And of course, we know that the Holy Scriptures is one of the most foundational things in our faith. Because when we have a question about what is it that is the truth, what is it that we should believe, of course, we go back to the Scriptures. And, and, and we consider that the Scriptures are the direct communication of God to us so that we know the truth, we know what God wants us to do, we understand where we came from, what is our origin, we understand how we got to be where we are, and we understand where we are going in the future, and the kind of life that we want to live, and how to have communion with this God who is our, who is our creator um, uh, all throughout our life and, and through eternity. So um, this very nice verse in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, is the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And this scripture, this word of God, has been the same from the very beginning, um, you know, from the time of the New Testament up until now. There has not been any changes. We, we believe that this is the word of God. We believe that this is his message to us. So we want to learn a little bit about it. So God's revelation to us comes in several forms, right? We know in the Old Testament, for instance, that God would speak to the prophets and he would communicate with them. And then they would then communicate to us and they would write down what is it that God has said. So one of those forms is the written words that were recorded by God's servants. These writings were compiled together to form a canon. The word canon means a measuring rod. That's what the word canon means. So when we say that we have the Christian canon of scripture, which is the Bible, it is the measuring rod of our faith. It is the measuring rod that we compare ourselves against. We measure ourselves compared to this. It's the standard. It's the gold standard that we measure against, okay? Um, that we're determined by the church to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and infallible. And we'll talk more about this, but um, one thing to understand is that, let's speak about the New Testament. God did not bring down from heaven a book that is like, here are all the books of the Bible. Here are the books that I want you to read. That is written word for word according to the dictation of God. That is not how the Bible came to us. The Bible came to us through the writings of individual people who were recording the things that God did or God said that were written down and then determined to be the work of the Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, when we read about, let's say, the Pauline epistles, St. Paul wrote letters to the church of Corinth, to the church of Thessalonica, to the church of Ephesus. You know, he wrote to all of these places. At the time, those were specific messages given to those specific churches to address real situations, real problems, to give them encouragement, so on, of, of, of situations that were happening at the time. But then very quickly, the church realized that these are not like regular letters. These letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were circulated around. They were read. They were, they were copied. They were passed around. And then much later, in the fourth century, this is when it was actually determined by the church that these letters are, should be compiled together in a canon of Scripture, in a book that now we call the Bible, along with the Old Testament Scripture. And then this would become like the Christian book, the Christian Scriptures. Okay, so so this is how it came about. We refer to this as the Bible, but it was not given to us in that form. It was not given as one 
monolithic book. Here is the Christian scripture. No, it was something that the church received over a period of time. So here are the, the major topics that we're going to discuss. Today we're going to focus on the first one, the authenticity and reliability of the Holy Bible. We'll also speak about the infallibility of the Bible, the biblical interpretation, alleged discrepancies of the Holy Bible, and then how we should read the Holy Bible. So the Bible was written by 40 different authors, approximately 40 different authors. And this is what makes the Bible very unique compared to the sacred writings of other religions, right? If you have one person who presents a book and he says, this book, I received it by divine inspiration. This book, I received it by some miraculous means. And here it is, okay? Like, for instance, this is how Mormonism developed, right? This man, Joseph Smith, he said, I, I, there, were th there was this, these tablets that I found, and here is the meaning of what's said, and, and I give it to you. And this is like the divine inspired works of God, okay? Well, who can argue against him? Did you actually find these tablets? Well, I don't have them now. Did you actually find them at some point? Is this really what was said? Who can corroborate what you are saying? Nobody can corroborate, right? And if someone is going to make a kind of uh, use their imagination and come up with a story uh, about some kind of religious uh, belief, right? It's very easy for a single person to do so because I control the whole document from beginning to end. I can say, oh yeah, there's prophecies and there's fulfillment of prophecies. And I can say that this happened and this happened, this happened. I can weave together a story and say, this is the, the truth. This, and I received it from God and no one can argue against me, right? Um, whereas with the Bible, it was written by 40 different people. They were written over a period of 1600 years. And these people were prophets, kings, fishermen, you know, like they came from all walks of life over a long period of time, and many of them. So if they were to get together and to try to cook up a story about, you know, the Christian faith, how would they even begin to do that? It would not be possible to do that. So when you have someone who's writing about the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying that he was going to be born from a virgin, saying that um, people are going to cast lots for his clothing, you know, saying that he is going to suffer and, and, and all the things that happened to him. And that was written like a thousand years ago. And then a thousand years later, we see that it is actually happening by someone completely disconnected and unrelated to the original person who wrote the prophecy, right? So this is one of the ways actually that we find the veracity, the truth of the Bible confirmed because it, it could not have been fabricated by just one or two people you know, by a secret society or a secret club that is going to come up with these things. No. And these, these people were not all like at the higher echelons, the higher ranks. You know, let's say all of them were kings. All of them were, you know, at the highest ranks and, you know, they know that they're going to perpetuate this myth from generation to generation. No, you had people in there who were fishermen, you know, writing these things, right? Has nothing to do. All of these people over a long period of time, m you know, it, it, it adds to the evidence that the Bible could not have been fabricated, okay? It was also written in different places, ranging from the Sinai Desert to the prison walls for St. Paul when he was writing his prison epistles. It was written at different times. Some of the, some of the times were times of peace, peace and times of war. There were different moods. There were some books that were very joyful, speaking about 
the joy of our salvation, speaking about having peace despite whatever circumstances we're in. And then there's other books who are very sorrowful, like the book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah is, is, is lamenting the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of the people, and the whole book is filled with sorrow. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. How could anyone have fabricated this? Right? If you find consistency and continuity between all of these books, right, how is it possible that someone could have fabricated this? Its subject matter include hundreds of topics with extraordinary harmony and continuity about one unfolding story, which is God's redemption of the human race. Sometimes people look at the Bible and they find it daunting because they're not very familiar with it. Where am I even going to begin? And what are all these names and what are all these places and what, are, what is everything that's happening? But there is one message, which is the message that is consistent throughout the whole scripture. And that is the work of salvation, the work of salvation, which is the returning of, of, of human beings back to God after the fall. The, the love that God is expressing to us, showing how he is calling us back to himself over and over and over. And that every time we fall, we rise again. Every time we sin, he forgives us again. He keeps giving us one chance after another after another. You know, the, the parable that he gave about the workers, the, 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 the wicked vine dressers, if we're familiar with this parable. In this parable, you have uh, a person who is the owner of a vineyard. And they go on a journey. And so they place people, he places people as stewards, as servants, to take care of his vineyard while he is gone. And these, these vine dressers are wicked. When it comes time for the harvest, the owner of the vineyard sends a servant of his to the vineyard and says, give me of the fruit of the harvest. But what is it that the vine dressers do? They kill him, right? So the owner, he sends another servant. He says, give me of the fruit of the harvest but they kill him again. And so then what does the owner say? He says, well, maybe if I send my own son, he they will respect him. So he sends his own son. But what is it that the people do? They say, oh, this is his son. This is the heir. If we kill him, then there will be no one to inherit this vineyard and it will become ours, right? And this, was, this parable is a symbol and a parable of the history of Israel. From the time that the very beginning where God is sending prophet after prophet after prophet to them, trying to get them to repent, trying to get them to submit, to obey his commandments, to accept from him what he is giving them. And every time they would kill the prophets, they would reject the prophets. And then finally, he sent his son and they didn't listen to him and they crucified him. Right. So this um, story, right, this parable is an example of really what has been happening all throughout the scripture and the love of God of continuing to send servants and his own son to us. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. And our understanding of inspiration is that it is God-breathed. It is God-given. Even though each writer of each book of the scripture express themselves according to their own style. God did not dictate the Bible. He didn't say to Isaiah, write this, you know. Da, 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 da. He didn't say to St. Paul, write this. No, each writer expressed themselves with their own style, using their own mind, but their words were guided by the Holy Spirit so that they are infallible and without error, 
which is why we call them to be inspired. This is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you read one book, you'll see a characteristic style of that author. And if you read a book of a different author, again, you'll see that characteristic style. If God is the one who dictated the Bible, then there would be one uniform style because God is not going to change his style from one book to the other. It would be uniform. All scripture is inspired by God. This is why when we read the scripture, we place it at such a high of such high importance. You know, when the priest stands right before we read the gospel, the priest stands in the door of the altar. He has the gospel box in his hand and he places it like this above his head, indicating what? That the gospel is above us. We do not judge the gospel. The gospel judges us. What we see around us happening in our society today, even among Christians, is that Christians will come and say, well, yeah, we believe in the Bible, but this specific area, we believe that what society is practicing and doing now is actually correct, even though it contradicts the Bible. Or let's reinterpret the Bible to fit and match with what we want to believe and what we want to practice. This is us judging the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to judge us. Because the Bible is what? It's the Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God. God is communicating Himself to us through it. And so when we read it, we are called to submit ourselves to it, even for the things that we don't understand. You know, even for the things that, why is God asking us to do this? Even for the things that I don't particularly agree with. You know, we, we spoke in the sermon today about how in the Christian life, we are first called to practice, and then understanding comes later, right? Understanding comes later. Let's give you the example of fasting. Someone might come and say, I don't understand fasting. It doesn't make sense to me. Why is changing my food going to do anything in terms of uh, holiness or righteousness or living the Christian life? So I would say, try it and see. If you want to know, try it and see. I could give you many arguments and many verses and many explanations, but in the end, the only way to really believe anything about Christianity is to first try it and see, right? That is how you will know. And we believe it because Scripture says so. We believe the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he tells us to fast. We believe that God gave commandments to fast to his people. We believe that there is benefit in fasting. Even if I don't really quite understand it, all Scripture is inspired by God. When you want to know about things that happened prior to our existence. Who of us was around, you know, at the time where Lucifer fell from heaven and was kicked out of heaven and became Satan? None of us was around. How, how can we corroborate this? What other external evidence do we have? We have no external evidence. Simply because God said. Who of us were in the, was in the Garden of Eden and knows about Adam and Eve? We don't know. Well, we leave it because God said, you know. And there are things that are hard to understand and maybe very hard to believe even. Like who believes that this man Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and he lived inside for three days and he didn't perish? I can't explain it. How is it that it came to be like that? But that's what God says happened. If we believe that God could resurrect himself from the dead, then anything is possible, right? The, the miracle of Jonah is nothing compared to resurrecting from the dead. And the resurrection of the dead is the most pivotal, central uh, thing in our faith as Christians for us to believe. So if we believe truly that the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, then it should be easy to believe everything else. Because again, the word of God is inspired by him. 
Also, in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, St. Peter reminds us, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What does this mean? Right? What does it mean that, that no prophecy is, is of one's own interpretation or private interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God? Meaning, the way that we understand the Scripture is not just according to my own mind, right? That's the private interpretation. Some people, and actually one of the reasons that we have so many Christian denominations uh, today is because everybody looked at the Bible. This started with Martin Luther. Martin Luther's belief was that any rational, sincere person can look at the Scripture and interpret it in the right way simply on their own. He rejected all church tradition. He rejected all church history. He rejected all the fathers of the church. He rejected anyone who interpreted the Bible before him. And he placed himself as the authority to say anyone who comes and just reads the Bible should come to the correct conclusion on their own. Okay, but here it says that in order for us to understand the scripture, that, that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So who is it that was the authors of these scripture? It was these men who spoke from God. It was these people who received this revelation from God, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, who wrote it down, and those people who interpreted it also were moved by the Holy Spirit. We do not believe that the church fathers are infallible. We do not believe the interpretation of the church fathers to be inspired the way that the scripture themselves are inspired. But we believe that the Holy Spirit works in them and that we can find a consensus about many, many things in the understanding and interpretation of the scripture. This is why we turn to them to understand what did the entire church, what did the majority of the church believe about a certain passage of scripture, about a certain belief? This is what we adopt. This is what makes orthodoxy um, in terms of biblical interpretation. This is what sets orthodoxy apart from many other denominations in Christianity is that we go back to the source. We go back to those people who were the closest to the time of Christ, to the time of the apostles, the ones who all had a consensus about what should be practiced and what should be done. We go back to them. So the, the Bible itself tells us that God is the author. God is the author of the scripture. The formation of the Bible. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew by all of these different writers, prophets and scribes and kings, right? All of these writers of the Old Testament, they wrote primarily in Hebrew. Around 200 BC, all of these Hebrew writings were translated into Greek by 70 ra rabbis, and this was known as the Septuagint. Septuagint means the 70, okay? The king of Egypt at the time, because he wanted the world as a whole to have access to read the Hebrew scriptures of the Jewish people, he commissioned these 70 rabbis to work on this project of translating these scriptures to Greek. Because at the time, Greek was like the universal language, kind of like English is now. People even in other countries can speak English. So at the time, Greek was that language, and so he wanted more people to have access to it. Um, Later on, there became Latin translations of the Septuagint in the late in the second century, and that way more people could have access to this. The first complete gospel didn't appear until around 60 AD, but collections of sermons and writings were partly available before this. 
Right, so we know that the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry in around 30 AD, okay? And so the, the disciples who were with him began to record all the things that were happening. This complete, what we would call one of the Gospels, was not completely available um, in its, as, a, as a whole beyond just individual writings until 60 AD. After the canonization of the Bible, remember the word canon, means that we are now accepting this set of writings as being canonical, as being the, measurings, the measuring rod, as being officially accepted as the inspired word of God in the church and disseminated as the holy scriptures of the Christian religion. That happened later in the fourth century. After the canonization of the Bible, the Old and New Testament sections were formed that we, are, uh, th that we um, have today. There are no original manuscripts of any of the books of the Holy Bible in existence today. Okay? None of the original documents that were written are available today. We don't have them. But we have is copies. But I'm going to show you the evidence that these copies, how accurate and how reliable are these copies. So that nobody can come and say, well, how do you know that the scripture you have is really the same as the original. What if it was altered? What if it was doctored? What if there was some change made or some error made or parts of it lost or parts of it inserted? Okay, we're going to talk about that. Many of the handwritten copies in Greek, however, are available from those early times. So remember, okay, um, the, the Old Testament Hebrew, original Hebrew, all of those were lost. But we have some of the Greek translations, the translations that were done by those 70 rabbis. The earliest complete manuscript of the New Testament is the Codex Sinaiticus, which dates from about the 4th century. Less complete manuscripts date as far back as the late 2nd century or about 130 AD. There are more copies of scripture and manuscripts available from the earliest times for the Holy Bible than any other ancient writings. The earliest translation of the New Testament were the Syriac, Latin, and Coptic versions. This is something I want to stress, okay? Um, I, I'll get to this in a second when we get to the, there's a table here I want you to see. The Latin translation from the original Hebrew and Greek was done by St. Jerome in the 4th century. This was the authoritative Bible for the Western Church and was known as the Vulgate. The Vulgate, which was a Latin translation of the scriptures, is what's used by the Catholic Church. This Western church is um, the, the what is now the Catholic church. With the invention of print, the circulation of the Bible expanded rapidly. The pioneer of the English Bible is William Tyndale, who published the New Testament in 1525. In 1604, King James sponsored a new translation of the Bible, which appeared in 1611 and is known as the King James Version. The version that we use now is the New King James, which is an updated version of the King James, which primarily changes all of the old English words like thee and thou and thy to more modern language. Harmony of the scripture. If you compare the first few chapters of Genesis and the last few chapters of Revelation, remember these were written by different authors at completely different times. Okay? In Genesis 1-1, regarding the creation, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 21, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, we read about the first marriage, the, the marriage between Adam and Eve. 
and the two became one flesh. In Revelations 19, we read, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. This is depicting the Lord Jesus Christ as the groom, and we call him the new Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ is the groom, and the bride is us, the church. His wife has made herself ready. The marriage, this is at the second coming, the uniting of the, the, the bride, the church, with the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Regarding Satan, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the victory that Satan had over Eve, causing her to sin and her fall. In Revelations 20, we read about the destruction of the devil. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil, and Satan, and bowed him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit. Right? The same themes that we see in the book of Genesis, we see in the book of Revelation. Sin and redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, it speaks about the sin that was committed by man and how it resulted in a separation between us and God. In Revelation, it speaks about the reuniting of man with God. It says, Behold the tabernacle of God with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Everything that was like destroyed or undone or, or corrupted in Genesis is now being remade. The tree of life that is mentioned in Genesis. In Genesis 3, we read about God preventing Adam and Eve from coming the tree of life, which would have been the source of immortality, eternal life for human beings. When they were re removed from the garden, they no longer had access to this tree. In Revelations 22, it says, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So again, the same theme. In Genesis, the, the separation and removal from this tree in, 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 in Genesis. In Revelation, the reuniting again with this tree. Survival of the scripture. The Holy Bible has survived thousands of years. It was written on perishable material and has been copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press. So we mentioned the idea of the copies, right? The copies were the only way that it could be transmitted from one person to the next, from one place to the next, from one church to the next. Yet this did not diminish the style, correctness, or existence of the Holy Bible. Compared with other ancient writings, the Holy Bible has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. The Holy Bible survived not only time, but also active persecution, both political and intellectual. The Holy Bible survives every day through criticism. No other book has been so chopped, knife sifted, scrutinized, and vilified, or subjected to such mass attacks. Nevertheless, it remains the book most read, most quoted, most referenced, most circulated, and most translated, and most cherished until this day. If this criticism were effective in the past, it would have rendered the Holy Bible unworthy of the critic's attention today. Meaning, if the Bible had been debunked already, after all of those attacks against it, there would be no reason for people to continue to try and debunk it, to continue to try to attack it, even now. The fact that critics continue to target the Holy Bible proves that their past criticism did nothing less than strengthen the belief in the Holy Bible itself. Okay, here's the textual evidence. If you want to look at how many manuscripts exist 
for the Bible compared to all of these other things. I'll bring your attention to the second to the last one. All children in high school read the works of Homer. Homer was a famous author that lived, um, and he wrote the, 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 these books. He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, were the two most famous writings of Homer. And he wrote the Iliad in 900 BC. Okay? The earliest copy from that, we, that we have from the Iliad is 500 years after it was written. Right? So it was written in 900 BC, and the first copy we have is 500 years later in 400 BC. 500 years between them. The number of copies that exist for the Iliad, 643 copies. Okay? Lo that's the most accurate. That's the, the, mo the best uh, evidence we have for any other manuscript other than the New Testament. Okay? Look at all these other ones, all, all these other examples. Um, 1,100 years between the original and the copy. 750 years, 1,200 years. All, and look at how many copies we have. Two copies, seven copies, seven copies, eight copies. The Iliad is actually the best other than the New Testament. Look at the New Testament. Written in the first century from 50 to 100 AD, the earliest copy we have is within 100 years of the original. And we have how many copies? 5,600 copies of the New Testament. And the, the variations or the accuracy, the variations between those copies, 99.5%. Okay? Very accurate. If there were fundamental flaws and errors in these copies, you would find that over time, the, 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 the changes would increase, like the deviations would increase, and you would see that there was a problem. Because it's like, you know, like you ever play the game, tel the game Telephone? You know, one person starts with something and then it morphs and it morphs and it morphs and then at the end you have something completely different than the original, okay? But here you see that the accuracy of the copies was very, very high. So think about it this way. At least I can tell you my experience. When I was in high school and we had to read the Iliad or the Odyssey, the teacher never came and said, you know what, we have very low confidence that this is actually what Homer wrote. We are just accepted at face value. This is what he wrote and this is what we are learning. Okay, but when it comes to the New Testament, even though the accuracy of the New Testament is higher and we have 10 times the number of copies of the New Testament, people will come and question everything about it. You know, is this really authentic? Did they really write this? Is there really a person named Jesus who lived? Did he really do all these things? Right. There is no this is not based on 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 real historical evidence. This is just based on on animosity toward the Bible. We have more than 24,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament in existence. No other document of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers and attestation. In comparison, the Iliad by Homer is second with only 60, 643 manuscripts that still survive. Other books, such as the writings of Plato and Herodotus, have no more than 20 surviving manuscripts. Besides the number of manuscripts that survive, the New Testament is unique in that the time span between its composition and the date of the earliest manuscript is incredibly short compared to other classical works. So the amount of time between the original and the copy is shorter than all of these other examples, which sometimes could be over a thousand years different between the time of the original and the time of the copy. 
This time span of 100 to 125 years is to be compared with spans of 1,000 to 1,600 years for the classical works of Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, Tacitus, Aristophanes, Euripides, Herodotus, and many more. The reliability of the New Testament manuscripts is also supported by the writings of the early church fathers. Suppose that the New Testament had been destroyed and every copy of it lost by the end of the third century. All but 11 verses could be collected from the writings of the fathers of the second and third centuries. What does that mean? The church fathers that lived in the second and third centuries that gave commentary on the Bible that wrote about the Bible, that quoted the Bible. They quoted the entire Bible except for 11 verses. And you could reconstruct the entire Bible if all you had was just the writings of the church fathers alone. And all of those writings of the church fathers match and corroborate with the original documents or the copies of those documents that we have. So you see this like amazing uh, correlation, an amazing uh, agreement with the original documents, the, sorry, the copies of the original documents of the scripture and the writings of the church fathers' commentary on them. There are not nearly as many extant Old Testament manuscripts as New Testament. The ones that do exist do not date as close to the time of the author's original document. The non-deuterocanonical portions of the Old Testament were written sometime between 1500 and 400 B.C., until recently, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest complete Old Testament manuscript was dated about 900 AD. This made a time gap of 1,300 years between when the Old Testament was completed and the earliest manuscript. So I'm going to, we'll stop here, and, and next week, God willing, we'll talk about why this is not a problem. The, 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 the Jews had a very, very... Uh, complex and specific technique that they used to make copies of the scripture. It's not like they just had a, a document and they're like, okay, let me just jot this over here. And that could produce a lot of errors. And over time, you're going to make copies of copies of copies of copies and then result in a problem. I'm going to go through next time, God willing, the exact technique and sequence that they would actually do in order to copy because they so revered this as the word of God that they had this very special way of doing it. And the special way of doing it actually meant that over time, the copies actually were more accurate than the original. And the reason is why the originals would fade over time because they were written on like animal skin. They were written on perishable material. And so they could fade, they could become blemished, they could become damaged and so on. Whereas the copies being newer, they would be maintained. And because of their copying technique, it guaranteed the accuracy of everything that was written. So God willing, we'll talk about that next time. Any questions before we conclude? Yes. They're both. So like Homer's work, the Iliad is fictional. But the works of Aristotle, for instance, those are not fictional. Those are just his writings. So this could be any kind of ancient writing and, and how, how it was preserved in time and the copies that we have, how close were they to the original, um, and so on. Uh, I believe so. 
I, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I believe any, yes, some of them I'm sure were. Yeah. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, for your blessing. And you, we ask, O Lord, that you give us an understanding of the value and the inspiration of your holy scriptures that is relevant for us in our lives, that we should read it, meditate on it, contemplate it, submit our will to it, and that we should always, O Lord, know that you have provided these scriptures for us, these writings for our benefit, for our blessing, and for our eternal life. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.